0: Well, if we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life East, and we are so glad that you've joined us, especially if you're a guest. We'd love to meet you and say hi to you in Connect Central just after this service. We have a gift for you. Just want to say thank you for being a part of a weekend here at New Life East. We are in a series all through the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. That's where we're going to be. Um, But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the power of a good story. Right. What we, we know is when we read a story, we watch a story, whatever, we know that stories have a pattern to them. They have a flow to them. They're not just sort of scattered bits of information, but they are intentional. There's a thought process to the way that they're unfolding. In fact, the great philosopher Aristotle, um, he at one point in his great writing Poetics, he said that all great stories have these three components, a beginning, a middle, and an end, profound. One of the great philosophers, I think my three-year-old could have come up with that if he wanted to. All great stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. However, for most of us, when we think about the great stories of our lives, the stories we've seen in a movie theater, we've read on the page of a book, the stories that we remember, we don't sort of go, well, you know what I loved about that story is it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. What we love about them is all sorts of things, but one of the things that sort of makes a story like grip us and sort of haunt us and hang around with us, it's it's that moment when you're reading a book and you just can't stop reading it, you can't put it down. It's that moment where you're watching a movie and you start to like lean up in your seat. Those stories have what artists, authors, directors would call a plot twist. That moment where you're watching a story and you quickly realize that the story you were watching is in fact not the story you thought it was after all. The way Aristotle would talk about a story is that in the beginning of a story, it's sort of like looking at a knot. You're examining it. You're recognizing that it is in fact a knot. In the middle of it, what you begin to focus on is the tension of it. And in the end, what happens is the knot unravels and all the pieces sort of come together. But the best stories are the ones where you're looking at the knot and you go, this might not actually be a knot at all. This might be something completely different. There's all sorts of stories and movies that do this really well. The one that I am the most fond of is the great movie Interstellar. Any fans in the room, Interstellar? Okay, what I've learned about people who have seen this movie is there are two kinds of us there's those of us who love it, and there's those of us who have seen it and still don't know what was going on in the movie. And that's totally fine. So let me explain it to you real quick. I bet you didn't think you were going to get this in church today. The movie Interstellar, the plot goes like this The earth is dying. Ecological disaster after ecological disaster, things are making earth impossible to live on. An astronaut by the name of Cooper, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, is invited to go on a mission through space and time to find an alternative planet for humanity to inhabit and move to and and live and reproduce. He goes on this journey, and when he does it, he leaves behind his 12-year-old daughter Murph who she spends the rest of her life attempting to solve the equation of gravity to help get all these millions of people off the planet. Now, the tension of the story is that as Matthew McConaughey's character leaves, his daughter is left believing that she has been completely abandoned by her father. That he has gone off to complete his life's mission and his life's work, his calling, if you will. And she believes that she has been left behind, that he has abandoned their family. So she lives her whole life with bitterness and rage and anger. She spends her whole life trying to solve this problem, but the whole time she is furious. The conclusion is that she eventually solves this equation and humanity is able to get off of earth and everyone survives. But the plot twist is that while she spends the entire movie believing her dad has abandoned her, she ends up solving the equation through the help of what she calls a ghost that communicates to her through stacks of books. And what we find out in the story is that her father has not, in fact, abandoned her. It was her father who was communicating to her through these stacks of books, through space and time. It's this beautiful story about how love is the only thing that might be able to save humanity across all of its greatest woes. If I'm not preaching right now, I don't know what I'm doing. It's this beautiful moment, but you're watching it and it feels like a tragedy. You, I watch it and cry the whole time and my wife just stares at me like, what are you crying about? <laughs> and then when the moment happens where you realize her dad has been chasing after her this whole time, trying to help her answer the questions, you're moved, you're cut to the heart. Now the question that exists for us, what does any of that have to do with Nehemiah? I'm so thankful that you asked. Nehemiah is the story of a cut bearer to the king who hears about the tragedy of his people, the city that they're living in, the wall that has symbolized protection for them has been destroyed. The city has been pillaged by marauders. It, it's in rough shape, and he's cut to the heart, and he follows God on a mission to help rebuild and restore this wall and this city, which is how we know the story of Nehemiah, right? Every week that we've preached this, it's been about how God is using Nehemiah to rebuild a wall. And I'm not here to say all those sermons were wrong, but I am here to say this that sometimes I wonder as I read Nehemiah if there's not more going on. Because the wall is rebuilt, completed by chapter six, and there's six more chapters left to go. What happens is the wall gets rebuilt and 40,000 of its citizens, of the citizens of the city show back up, coming out of exile. They show back up and what begins to happen are these odd things. They start to re-implement the festivals of their ancestors. Ezra begins to read the scriptures in the middle of the city, and people begin bowing down and worshiping with all that they have. They're not really sure why. They came back because the wall was rebuilt. They thought they were coming back to life as it used to be, you know, the good old days. They begin to bow down and worship, and then all of a sudden there's this moment in Nehemiah chapter 9 where we really get a sense that there might be something more happening. It says this, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting And wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So, this has to, for them, feel like a bit of a bait and switch. We showed up to come back to life as it ought to be, to this peaceful place, and yet I'm out here pouring dirt on my head, tearing my clothes, and confessing all the things I have ever done wrong. What's interesting is how they begin to confess it. They don't just look at God and say, God, we're sorry we've messed up. They begin to retrace the history of their people. Hold on with me if you have a Bible, just watch the screens because I'm going to jump all over real fast. Verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. A couple verses later, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how, how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them a light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You smoked to them from heaven. You gave regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. What are they rehashing? The story of Exodus, God leading his people out being given the commandments. And then a few verses later, but they, our ancestors became arrogant and stiff necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said this is your god who brought you up out of Egypt or when they command when they committed awful blasphemies a few verses later for 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness they lacked nothing their clothes did not wear out nor did their feet become swollen but they were disobedient and rebelled against you they turned their backs on your law they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, they committed awful blasphemies. You guys get the picture. What is happening in this moment of repentance is that God is inviting his people to restore themselves in the midst of what he's doing. This is not just about Nehemiah rebuilding a wall. In fact, I'm going to tell it to you this way this is a plot twist that happens in Nehemiah. God was not using Nehemiah to simply restore a wall, but he was using Nehemiah to restore a people. This is what's happening. He's casting their story in the midst of the larger story of what God is doing. This was never about Nehemiah getting a wall built. This was about Nehemiah helping get God's people back to him. He's helping restore them in the midst of what God is doing. But here's the fun part the way that that restoring is happening is through the act of repentance. We are going to have a fun morning. It's through the act of repentance. Now, I don't know about you, repentance might just feel like a church word or something that you heard growing up and you're not even really sure what, the, like what it's about. The way that Israel thought about following God was that God was present and he was over here and the way that they would follow him is they would keep their eyes locked on him. They followed what, what we would know as the great commandment in the Old Testament, which was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your strength. This is what they're doing. They're keeping their eyes on him, they're following him. The the scriptures even use this language. So what happens for Israel quite often is while God is over here doing his provisional caretaking thing, what Israel would do is turn their backs and go and wander, build false gods, worship other things. And so the word repentance comes from the Hebrew word shuv. Let me hear you say shuv. And the idea is not to look at God and say, God, I'm so sorry I messed up. To shuv is to quite literally take your body and turn Around, to look back at the God who is providing, who is caring for you. So when we sin, what's happening is we're walking further and further away from the God who has loved and created us. To shove to repent, is to come back to him with hope and trust that he is going to redeem and restore us. Why does this matter for us today? Well, what I recognize is that even in the church today, there are seasons of our lives where sin creeps back in, where we in fact go from facing God to the fullest, looking up at him with holy reverence and wandering in a different direction. What I also recognize happens is that when we do that, whether it be big or small, is that we begin to carry shame around with us. Those failures begin to define us. There might even be people in this room, some of us, who what we're carrying around is sin that has been so hidden for so long, we don't even recognize it as such. We simply excused it. So what I want to do today is look at a few things that the scriptures in Nehemiah point out to us about repentance, about what it might have to do with us today and how it might transform our lives in this very moment. So the first thing that I recognize about repentance is simply this, is that repentance is often initiated when we hear the word or the words of God. Now think about this. What happens at the beginning of this chapter? They all get together. They start repenting, they're tearing their clothes, and the scriptures say that they spend a quarter of the day reading the law, reading the Pentateuch, recognizing all the things that God has done for them, all the laws, all the regulations, the commandments that have been set before them. They spend a quarter of the day doing it. If you're like me at all, it's hard enough to sit down for 20 minutes straight and read the Bible. They do, oh, just me. Okay, you guys, you all read it. You're like hour-long people. Oh my gosh, you guys are dead. That's what's happening. You guys just aren't alive in the room today. 11 o'clock. This is a participatory sport. As Andy said, I'm going to make someone come up here and preach next time. It's hard enough for me to engage with the scriptures in a meaningful way for 20, 30 minutes. And what these guys do is they begin to stand for a quarter of the day reading the scriptures and then a quarter of the day confessing because it's just the thing that happens when you read the Bible. Maybe for you the problem is that you just can't find time to get into the scriptures, but I think for most of us the problem is different. It's not that we don't have time, it's about how we read this thing. I would propose to you that what we often do when we encounter passages of conviction, things that should cut us to the heart, stories that should challenge us, what we often do is think about all the other people out there. We read them and they should challenge us, but what we do is think about all those people who get it wrong, We think about the injustice in the world, not the injustice in our own souls. And the problem is when we read the scriptures facing outward is that we think everyone else is wrong and all it can produce in us is self-righteousness. If we read them facing inwards, it can produce formation and healing. But if we read them facing outwards, all we can do is become self-righteous. And here's why that's problematic. If Jesus railed on anyone more than anything else in the gospels, do you know who it was? It was the self-righteous religious people. Jesus would stand in the midst of sinners and offer them salvation and healing, and yet he would stand in the midst of the religious people and be like, man, you guys have really missed this whole thing, haven't you? In fact, I think of a moment in the gospels, in the gospel of Luke, where Jesus tells a story It's Luke chapter 18, verse nine. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. You know anyone like that? Are they sitting next to you this morning? Don't look at them. (laughs) Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the good religious person, the one following all the rules, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people. God, I thank you that I'm not like the evildoers, the robbers, the adulterers, the Democrats, the Republicans, the people who look differently than me, the people who have more or less resources than me, the people that I work with, my in-laws, my neighbors, God, thank you that I'm not like them. I'm so much better. Be honest. You ever prayed a prayer like that? He says, thank you that I'm not like these evildoers, these people who are wrong, or even like this tax collector. It's funny. They say that the Pharisee stands on his own, and we often think it's to sort of differentiate the two. He's standing on his own because no one gets close to people like that. No one gets close to people that think they're better than everyone else. He says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Think about it. God, I follow all the rules. I get it all right. A Pharisee was an expert in the law. They read the scriptures day and night. God, I've read your word. I do it all perfectly. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up. To heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus follows it up with this commentary. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, let me ask you a question this morning. How are you hearing the word of God? When you hear it, is it all about the wrongs of those people? Are you reading the scriptures as a mirror where when you open them up, you're forced to look at the deepest, darkest parts of yourselves or is it all projected outwards? See, when we respond to the word of God, repentance and clear thoughts about ourselves can't help but form, which is why the next thing I wanna point out that I see in Nehemiah is simply this, is that repentance is our natural response to seeing God for who he truly is. Think about the way they recast this history and this narrative. They, this is what they say about God. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens. You give life to everything. You saw the suffering of our people. You led them out of Egypt. You're a forgiving God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding, good, abounding in good love. You give your spirit. You do not withhold. You delivered. You rescued. What they're doing is looking at God for who he truly is and that's, causing, that's forcing them to see themselves for who they truly are. Because when you look at a God is good, a God who is good, you can't help but be reminded of all the places that you're not that great. When you look at a God who is willing to step in and intervene in the injustices of the world, you can't help but be reminded of all the times you've chosen apathy. When you look at a God who is compassionate, you can't help but be reminded of all the moments and times where you were anything but. When you think of a God who is slow to anger, you can't help but be reminded of all the times you've driven with rage on 25. When you think of a God who is quick to forgive, you can't help but think of all the people that you have held on to burdens and resentment and grudges towards. What happens when they see God for who he truly is is it forces them to evaluate their own lives. But today, we do a bit of an interesting thing. When we mess up, we start to rationalize it to ourselves by going... Well, but everyone does it, right? We say, you remember this, when you were a teenager, you're trying to get your parents to let you do something, you go, but mom, dad, everybody's doing it. We do the same thing now. We go, man, everybody skims a little off the top in business. It's just what they do. No one really takes HR seriously at work. Everyone is mean to people from time to time. Everyone gossips, everyone Everyone watches porn, so it's all good. Everyone sleeps around, even when they're married. It's just what happens. We start to rationalize to ourselves. Why are we doing it? Because we're looking at everyone else as the standard. But everyone else is not the standard. If I start to look at everyone else for the standard for behavior, I'm going to get sideways real fast. I can start excusing a lot of behaviors. Well, look at what this person did. If they did it, they're still alive. It must be okay. What the God of the scriptures invites us to do is to keep looking at him. To see what holiness looks like. To see what the calling upon our lives looks like. To see who Jesus is. And to follow as such. Maybe for you the question today is who have you been comparing yourself to? Is it everyone around you? Or is it the God who is good and holy and kind? Safe, loving, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. I recognize another thing that happens in Nehemiah as repentance begins to unfold is this. It's, it's simply this. It's that repentance can have long-lasting effects when we are willing to be specific with God. Repentance can have long-lasting effects when we're willing to be specific with God. I recognize that what the Israelites do when they're retelling the story of Israel is they don't look at God every time they messed up and go, "God, you know what happened. God, I'm so we're very sorry, but you get it." No, they get really specific. They say, "Our people were stiff-necked. Our people murdered the very prophets who came to speak to us." Our people turned their backs on you and built an idol. Our people, I love the line, our people gave themselves to a leader to go back into slavery. They are so specific. They don't speak to God in vague generalities. But how do we often repent if we repent at all? God, you know what I did. I'm really sorry. God, I, God have mercy on me, a sinner. The power comes when we get specific about the places that we failed. If you're a parent, you know the power of what it looks like for someone to be specific about where they've messed up. I think about my three-year-old son, Huck. Some of you know him. Some of you have watched him in children's ministry, and that's why you don't volunteer in children's ministry anymore. <laughs> Huck is a gift. Huck is incredible. I remember not long ago, I was going to pick him up from, from preschool, and and as I'm I'm heading into the The hallway, I see his teacher standing at the door and she's giving me that look like I have something to tell you. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm just going to go wait in the car and you can just bring him out when you're done. So I get up to his teacher. His teacher's name was Miss Peggy. I say, Miss Peggy, how's it going? And she goes, we've had an interesting day. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I go, oh, so fun. What was interesting about it? She goes, well, Huck did not have kind hands. I go, I don't, can you talk to me like an adult? I don't, what does kind hands mean? She goes, well, he hit someone. And I go, okay, who'd he hit? She goes, well, me. And I had, honest moment here, I had this very strange emotion of, I don't know to be proud of my son for hitting a teacher or really disciplinary with him. Because I remember some teachers that I was like, "Eh, we could box. If you're a teacher, I love you, and I respect what you do so much. Um, she says, Huck did not have kind hands. He punched me. So I pull Huck aside. I go, hey, listen, when we get home, we are going to talk. He's three. He doesn't know what I'm saying. We are going to talk. So we get in the car. He goes, Dad, can we listen to music? We are not listening to music. You are going to be in trouble. He goes, can I, can I tell you something? I go, no, you can't tell me anything. Just sit in the car seat. We get home. We sit down at the table. I go, Huck. Do you know what happened today? And he goes, I got in trouble. I go, yeah. What would you get in trouble for? He goes, um, I don't know. <laughs> okay, good. Um, Huck, did you hit a teacher? He goes, yeah, I hit Miss Peggy. And I go, why would you hit Miss Peggy? He goes, she was mean to me. I was like, well. <laughs> so I go, hold on, hold on. So I go, I go. I go, listen, buddy, we do not hit people that we love. And my wife goes, no, we don't hit anyone. And I go, let's, one thing at a time. Huck, we do not hit people that we love. I got in so many fights in high school. There's some moments, right? Huck, we do not hit people that we love. He goes, okay. I go, I need to hear you say, I'm sorry. And he goes, I'm sorry. And I go, what are you sorry for? He goes, um, I don't know. And I go, Okay, Huck, I need you to say, I'm sorry for hitting Miss Peggy. He goes, I'm sorry for hitting Miss Peggy. We make him sit down. He like scratches, makes a bunch of scribbles on a piece of paper. He helps me write a note to Miss Peggy. We give it to her the next day. All was fine. The value of him being specific is not because I'm trying to be a controlling parent. The value of him being specific is that you as parents know this. The hope is that one day we will go to school and the teacher doesn't go, Huck didn't have nice hands. The hope is that if you can get specific about where you failed, you can correct your life. If you choose to be vague, God is going, so this is just religious exercise for you. God, I've messed up. I'm sorry. I'll fix it. What'd you mess up with? Because the problem is our lives will never course correct if we can't call a spade a spade. If you can't say that money has become an idol to me, God, I'm sorry. Money will continue to be an idol. You will just hide it. If you can't say, God, I have an addiction problem, you're just going to hide it. You'll keep coming to God when things are bad but you'll hide it. If you can't look and say, God, I've given more to my career than to the people I love, you'll never course correct. You'll look back at God for a second, but then you will keep your back to him as you walk through the rest of life. I can think of only one legitimate reason though that we might be hesitant to be specific with God. Just one. One. I can only think of one legitimate reason where we might refuse to be honest and clear with him. And it would be that deep down, we are still unsure of if he is as good as he says he is. Deep down, we are still quite unsure if he will receive us even when we failed. Deep down, we wonder if the community that we're a part of will still receive us if we failed. But I love the line, At the end of this confession, Nehemiah 9, verse 33, it simply says this. In all that has happened to us, in New Life East, this is true of us. You have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. In all that has happened to us, God has remained righteous. This is why they cast themselves in the story of all of God's people is they recognize that the reason they can repent and come back to him is because he will always receive them. He will never, he will never turn his back on them. No matter how many times we wander off, this God of ours will continue to be loving and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and quick to forgive. This is the God That we serve. With that in mind, New Life East, would you stand? The power of what happens in Nehemiah is not just that people repent individually, it's that there's a moment where everyone is is confessing their brokenness and they see their brothers and sisters to the right and to the left of them doing the same. There's power in us standing together as a church and calling out the places of failure and sin and injustice in our own lives. So that's what we're going to do this morning. New Life East, would you say these words with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And there's no better place to go to right now than to the table of the Lord. Because the table is the great moment throughout all of human history where we are reminded that our God will receive us in our brokenness and our frailty because of the work that Jesus has done. So friends, what we're going to do here in a moment is you're going to exit down the center aisle. If you're over here, you're going to come down these two. If you're on the side, you'll come down here. Over here, you'll come this way. And some of our team will be up here to receive you and to serve you communion. And as we eat and as we drink today, I want you to be reminded of the goodness of our God, the safety of our God, that as we approach him, he is kind, he is gracious to receive us. So would our communion servers come forward this morning? And let me pray over you as we get ready to receive communion. God, as we stand before you, we posture ourselves as humble people. We stand here eliminating self-righteousness from our lives. We are not better than anyone else. We stand here attempting to see ourselves as clearly as we can because we want to see you as clearly as we can. God, for the person in here who is, who is broken, whose choices and actions have destroyed relationships and friendships, whose choices and actions have felt like it's fractured their relationship with God, would you speak to them right now and let them know that they are safe? to come to you and that you will receive them. So God, we come to you with hope today, not shame. Trusting and believing that what you will do when we come to you is heal us and restore us and make us a new creation, forming us into the likeness of your son. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and make your way forward.
1: Restore my soul, revive my heart, renew my life in every part. Reveal to me what sin remains. Then lead me to the cross again. Real light the fire that burns so strong. say
2: The wages of sin is death. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you. Hallelujah, that's right. And would you hold these elements in your hand and just feel the weight of them. And even though they don't physically weigh a lot, what they represent is that while you were yet a sinner, Christ gave his body for you in your place. What you're holding in your hand is is Christ dying for the ungodly. God, we give thanks for that. God, we hold these elements, and instead of feeling guilt and shame, we feel thankfulness, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, You came to us. You came rushing to us. And what you do is you invite us to a meal. That's your reaction to us. You don't turn us away. You say, Come and sit with me. And so, God, here we are with you in thankfulness. And we remember the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed after he had given thanks (laughs) for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He did this out of joy. He broke bread. Would you break it? His body was pierced for our transgressions. This is his broken body for you. Would you receive it? And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. God looks at you differently. It's not what you have to do. It's not a, lift of, a list of do's and don'ts in order to gain access to Jesus. It's just simply that you called upon the name of the Lord. That's what makes you saved. Thank you, Jesus, for the cup of salvation. Would you receive it with thankfulness? Thank you, Jesus. And now our only reaction is to worship. Would you sing the doxology together?
1: Praise God for all- Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy.
0: New Life East, would you open up your hands to receive this blessing today? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. And may we go out of here people who will continue, even in the midst of our failures, to keep turning back to a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for being here with us today. Remind you, in Connect Central, Dave and Jason will be out there, some of our global outreach partners. They'd love to say hi to you and give you a space to get to know them a little bit. We hope you guys have a great weekend, and we will see you next week.